This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hello and welcome back everybody to the fifth of the monthly expert panel discussions. Now, as I mentioned before, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration, land management, and more. In this session, I hosted a discussion on farm business and finances with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. In this panel, I got two of my favorite voices on the subject of farm economics and business advice to talk about how managing the whole ecosystem of their farms has saved them money and improved the profitability of their businesses. Now, since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep the intro short and jump right into the introductions for our two panelists. Now, because of the demands of the heavy planting season in the springtime, Michael Abelman wasn't able to join until later, so let's jump right in with Mark Shepard. At the moment, we've got Mark Shepard with us, who is the CEO of Forest Agriculture Enterprises, LLC, and founder of Restoration Agriculture Development, LLC, as well as award-winning author of the books Restoration Agriculture and Water for Any Farm. He's most widely known as the founder of New Forest Farm, the 106-acre perennial agricultural savanna, considered by many to be one of the most ambitious, sustainable agriculture projects in the United States. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of new ones these days. And you gotta, and you've gotta like that little line right there is the one line that bothers me because it's not the actual uh, one piece of real estate that makes it such a large project. There's a whole planet out here that needs to be ecologically restored while producing food, fuels, medicines, fibers, and human habitat. That's the ambitious project. Very well said. And I'll give you a chance to expand on that by starting by exploring why managing the health of your farm's entire ecosystem is essential for its profitability as a business as well. Well, well, yeah, and, and uh, part of it has to do with, with my perspective uh, in that I see things through the eyes of an ecologist. We're studying the health of, of living systems on planet Earth, and let's just take uh, an orchard, for example. 100% of all of the problems that you have in an apple orchard are because we view the world through this intellectual concept called orchard, which is rows of straight rows of trees and nothing shall bother it, et cetera, et cetera. That starting with that idea, the idea is just wrong. It's a falsehood. This is not how this planet rolls. So what now become expenses in an orchard to manage an orchard, those are all uh, you trying to recover health to this system that's not even true. It's not even based on nature. So if, if we have a healthy ecosystem, a full complete ecosystem that includes apples in it, we may get fewer apples per hectare um, than if we had an orchard, but our problems, quote unquote, go away because we're, we're emphasizing the overall ecosystem health. And what's great about ecosystem health is much of that can be accomplished using life forms that grow and propagate. And you can either sell the life forms, the products of the life forms, the offspring of those life forms, they generate and regenerate themselves 
basically free of charge because they live there happily as can be. So when you have that healthy whole complete ecosystem, your costs, your dollar costs to manage it go way, way down. Does that, did I successfully avoid answering a question or? or no, 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 you answered it perfectly. I just didn't expect you to answer it so succinctly. Um, so yeah, so that's a really good overview of, uh, of, of kind of changing the, the mindset around a lot of our production methods as they are currently. Um, I'd also like to explore some of the, the top three investments or some of the top investments in your own farm's ecology, which has saved you the most money over time. To give some examples from, from your own context. Well, the, the uh, investments I've made that have, have been the most beneficial over time have been setting the property up as an ecological system that mimics uh, a historic natural plant community type of the area for one, because uh, once you set up a system that is ecologically in line with the place where you live, all of the forces of nature of succession, all these weeds that are coming into your system, they're driving you forward instead of fighting against nature and natural processes or processes for the Canadians in the audience, we're working along with them. And as far as uh, dollars returns, uh, within that system, I'm hesitant to say one or two things work great because I, I deal with this with clients all the time. They look at spreadsheets with multiple different crops and multiple different enterprises. They say, oh, look, this black currants, for example, black currants make way more money per hectare than any other crop in this. Let's get rid of everything else and just plant black currants. Well, what you just did is you just lost the synergies between them and you missed the opportunities for emergent properties uh, that, that you never would have expected if you had that full diverse uh, ecosystem in place. But the, uh, so they aren't the only revenue stream on the, uh, coming from the property, but the two, uh, the two individual crops that are the highest performing crops economically are um, uh, hazelnuts, asparagus, and followed closely by livestock. And the reason why the livestock hasn't made more is because I only want to deal with so many. It just gets out of control and I hate moving fence and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, that's a perfect example of how you've sort of narrowed down the things that work for you and what it is that you're personally trying to accomplish, not only through the ecology there, but also on the business end. Can you tell us a little bit about how you narrowed down the options when looking at the overall picture of what you were trying to accomplish on the landscape? as far as that profitability, like you mentioned. Well, that's really interesting too, because narrowing down the options wasn't necessarily something that I did by choice. I didn't have to look at spreadsheets or anything like that. And a great example uh, was um, daffodils for cut flowers. You know, I've got, I don't know, 85, 83 zillion daffodils out on the farm. I planted them around my fruit trees for sod control because they actually do uh, eliminate sod underneath your fruit trees. I also repel rodents so you don't have rodent damage girdling your trees. And for a while I was just selling literally, you know, huge armloads of daffodils about it. At the time I was getting about a dime per stem. Well, then what happened is all of a sudden uh, the asparagus started to kick in and they overlapped in seasons. So I just forgot about doing the daffodils and went to picking the asparagus 
And I found out that, well, you know what? There's a lot more dollars on my farm in the asparagus than there is in the daffodils. Uh, I might as well concentrate on the daffodils. What's nice about having the whole system in place is the fact that I still have the daffodils. And if I want to, I can go back and I can start harvesting the daffodils. I still have hay that I can cut on my farm. I haven't cut hay since like the late 90s, the last big drought, um, because I had green grass and nobody else did, so I could cut hay and sell it. Um, but I have it if I need it. So having that, that complete ecosystem gives us options that, um, that, we, that we wouldn't have otherwise if we didn't um, plant the full complete system. So it sounds like you've got a whole bunch of byproducts of creating an entire ecosystem that you can choose to focus on based on what the price of them are, what fits in with your lifestyle and your management strategy, and also the time of the year or the, the season that is congruent to making money off of those. Was that what you went into the design planning for? Or did that kind of come about as the ecosystem started to uh, develop and mature and gain in complexity? Well, it, well, theoretically, we knew that that was going to happen through time, but we'd never done this. You know, as far as I knew, when we got started, nobody had tried to do a ecosystem, uh, a managed ecosystem as their profit center of the full complete thing, everything from, you know, annual plants to, you know, long lived perennials. We didn't know anyone who had done that before. So we knew we were going to learn all along the way. And so a lot of my, uh, you know, systems and people say, oh, what a brilliant system. It's like, no, 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 it wasn't a brilliant system. I just couldn't keep up with that, so I let it go. I couldn't keep up with that, so I let it go. I hate this, and so I don't do it. Um, one of the, what mentioned um, through the seasons and through the years, well, one of the things that's happening with the system, if it started with the annual crop field, corn and beans fields, et cetera, which it did, now it's changing through time. Some of our pioneer trees are beginning to interfere with our crop trees, so they got to come down. Now I knew that I was going to get into uh, harvesting timber at some point in time. I didn't know when, but it was about year 10 that I started to be able to harvest hybrid poplar timber for, for cutting into lumber, and then I built a processing building with that lumber. Well, those hybrid poplars have since sprouted back, and in order to keep them from shading out other crop trees like walnut and chestnut and hazelnut, um, I'm removing them as almost as fast as I can. And I and literally I can't keep up because I've got thousands of them. And uh, we've moved into producing uh, mushrooms, especially oyster mushrooms, um, like never before. Not because we necessarily wanted to, not because we planned on it, not because we were brilliant and designed it that way, because we got to get rid of all this wood and the wood is going to decompose, well, we might as well decompose it with an edible mushroom that's super good for you. And what's really fascinating is it happens to be um, really high in beta-glucans, which is uh, antiviral. And so, huh, isn't that fascinating that it might be nice to have some like antiviral and tons of zinc in it as well. And then those of you in northern climates, uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, is very gray and cloudy in the wintertime. And you know, blue and gray is all the color you see. And uh, oyster mushrooms are super high in vitamin D. And so it's like perfectly timed to all of a sudden have an excess amount of oyster mushrooms that shucks we have to sell for six bucks a pound. <sighs> brilliant, brilliant. 
Um, so to give some of our listeners who perhaps are not as familiar with your systems as I've become over the years, can you tell them about your tree planting method that you've become known for, the stun method and kind of the backstory of why you have so many extra trees that you need to harvest now? Well, all right, that goes to the multiple enterprises. Well, the, the stun method isn't necessarily a tree planting method, but it's a tree breeding uh, and selection uh, method. And if you look at the ditch on the side of the road, no matter where you are, even in the Netherlands, the most insanely groomed place that I've ever been in the world, they still have brush grown in the ditch. Um, you know, that brush was not, not planted, plowed, and nobody used herbicide, fungicide, pesticide, uh, site preparation, cover crops, nobody did anything to it and it still grows. And it's hyper dense, there's trees that are literally, you know, five, six, eight centimeters apart and what happens is they sort themselves out through time and that the trees that have whatever genetic uh, magic it is to survive and thrive and then reproduce, they're the ones that survive there. So that's exactly what nature does in order to come up with the individual plants, the cultivars that will survive there. Not one grain of pollen from a flower, put it in another flower, put a bag on it and pray and then put it in a stainless steel environment, whip it up in tissue culture and clone it and send it out over zillions of acres. That's not how nature works. So uh, by planting too many trees of seedlings, instead of uh, finding one true high performing individual, we breed a, uh, a population that's fit and it can survive the soil as it is, the weather as it is, the climate, the highs, the lows, the wind, the ice, all of the uh, hassles that we can possibly throw at it, the ones that survive are the ones that survive our disturbance regime, our selection criteria. Um, when you plant trees, go ahead and plant way too many, go ahead and plant seedlings and uh, you'll have all of the horticulturists and orchardists and university people telling you you're the biggest fool in the world. Well, you know what? They have salaries and they have life, life insurance and health insurance and they work in these nice little buildings and they have nice little controlled experiments. I live on planet earth and it's the real world out here and they're cute little experiments, although very, very precise and very well researched, you know, they kind of fall on their face when you try to put them to use in the real world. And then you say, oh, it failed. So now I got to buy another input to kind of control it to act like a laboratory. So with planting too many trees, using seedlings, my input costs drop down to almost zero. If I do anything to my trees, I'm now like with the hybrid poplars, I'm removing the trees and doggone it, I get firewood, uh, which is you know great for fuel. I get building material to build a building out of, and I get mushrooms that I can sell and eat as antivirals. They don't teach you that in universities and you can't research that and you have to respond to that and react to that on the fly. Now, how did I get that many, how did that, um, how did I get to that strategy and how did I get that many trees on, on the farm? One of the things that I've done that, that uh, structurally it's invisible, it's not biological or agricultural um, is the real estate the land itself is owned by a real estate investment company that, you know, I'm the general partner of a limited partnership. That's the real estate owning entity. It can take investors if, if it wants, it can borrow if it wants, all that kind of stuff. Its job is to invest in real estate 
and then improve the value of the real estate by doing ecological restoration that pays its own way. So that's one behind the scenes step. Well, okay, now there's this piece of real estate. How do we, how do we get the uh, water management systems in place? How do we plant the agroforestry systems? Well, there needs to be a, a farming entity that actually is going to farm the land. And so that's New Forest Farms LLC. And that actually is the agricultural uh, products that are sold from the farm. It's the livestock, the mushrooms, um, apples, grapes, and so on. Uh, mostly it's been organic produce for years and years and years, asparagus being the, the kingpin of, of the produce. Well, where does it get the trees from? Because uh, it can't afford to buy trees because it doesn't have any money. Well, there's the forest agriculture nursery that is a tree and shrub nursery that at first started by uh, buying um, trees wholesale uh, from you know, catalogs back in the day. You, know, you buy a thousand trees, you get the thousand tree rate, which is you know, very affordable compared to buying two trees and paying a two tree rate. Well, then I would plant the trees that I wanted to have in a particular system. I would sell a bunch of trees and mark them up. So if I bought a, a trees at a thousand rate, you only want 100 trees, well, I'll sell them to you at the 500 rate. So I'm cutting you a deal and I'm getting a deal because your trees are paying for my trees. So all of the trees that go into the ground at New Forest Farm have gone in either uh, at no charge or at a profit. And then um, as my trees started to reproduce and that was really quick, because my first selection criteria is hyper-precocity, really fast turnaround to when they produce nuts or fruits. And then I take those seeds and put them in the ground. So here's the farmer, New Forest Farm, goes out and gathers all these seed. It's got to sell the seeds, so it sells the seeds to the nursery. The nursery puts them in the ground, grows them into trees, sells what it can, and the surplus get planted on the land that the farmer now manages. So all three of those enterprises work together to uh, improve the value of the real estate and then how the real estate holding entity has cash flowed through time. And I've, this is not the only property that I've done this on. I've done it on numerous properties. Uh, it then can refinance, um, paying off the lower value on the loan because you've been paying through time. And the, the property has increased. Refinance, take that and buy another degraded piece of property and do the same thing. And so I've been a non-selling real estate flipper since 1986. I've done it on, you know, thousands of acres in multiple states all across the USA. It works. It works financially. Yeah, I have no doubt. And that's a really cool complementary enterprise to the others that you mentioned as well. Now, I believe Michael may have joined us. So I just want to make sure that he's in here and see if he can join in the conversation. Michael, you here with us? For my uh, lateness, uh, I won't get into the details. <laughs> Good to you see know. you, Michael. Nice to see you all. Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I'm a little. I'm coming into this a bit cold. So tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. <laughs> Well, let me quickly give everybody uh, a little primer on who you are and why you're joining us today. So everyone who's listening, Michael Abelman is here. He's a farmer, author, photographer, and urban and local food systems advocate who's been farming organically since the early 1970s. 
and is considered one of the pioneers of the organic farming and urban agricultural movements. Michael is the author of four trade published books from The Good Earth, On Good Land, Fields of Plenty, and most recently, Street Farm, Growing Food, Jobs, and Hope on the Urban Frontier. Did I miss anything important there, Michael? <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I'll get, I'll get us started. Thanks for joining us. I know you're on a tight schedule being in planting season. And we have so far been talking about farm ecology and Mark has been giving us an overview of how he got started, some of the many different enterprises on his farm. And we've been exploring different questions about profitability by managing the entire ecology of a farm. Um, now that you're here, could you give us a little bit of a primer on your own experience uh, in your own experience managing the ecology on your farms? Can you tell us about how those steps have saved you money or increased the profit profitability of the farm business? Okay, well, that's a big question. Um, what I think I'll do is give you a, just a real brief overview. And I'm hoping, Oliver, assuming that we can allow the uh, all those in attendance to then drive the conversation based on Q&A. Is that right? Hopefully. That's that right. In the last half an hour, we'll be doing well, our Q&A. I'm going to be real brief because I'm a little unprepared, but, but I have, um, I've been involved with a number of projects, both here in British Columbia and in California. Uh, I spent 25 years on this uh, same farm project in California, uh, 12 and a half acres. Uh, we produced um, 100 different fruits and vegetables. We employed 30 people. Uh, we, we were feeding fruits and vegetables to roughly uh, four to 500 families. And we were generating about a million dollars US in gross uh, income. Now, at that time, and this was uh, up until 20 years ago, because I've been here in BC for a while, um, uh, those numbers didn't make any sense at all uh, to anyone, certainly those involved with um, agricultural economics, um, uh, it, it, it didn't make sense. We were told all along the way that it wasn't possible uh, to do what we were doing on that scale. Uh, how were we able to do that? Well, uh, you mentioned the, the word ecology, and I, I think um, I, I'm very careful about how I use language. <laughs> uh, and I think there's many definitions of that as there is economy. And, um, but I would say that uh, the ecological elements of what we did there uh, really drove our ability to achieve the numbers that I just described. You know, um, it was highly intensive, uh, but it was highly intensive ecologically as as much as it was uh, production-wise. Um, and you know, we uh, I'll give you one example. Um, we had a small block and I, I, our most people are, everyone's from around the world, I guess here, huh? Is that right? Okay. Um, I'm hoping I'm not talking to just Northerners because when I start talking about uh, avocados and citrus, uh, I'll see people jumping off the call, but, but we grew a lot of av avocados and citrus. There was one particular block of avocado trees uh, that had been planted literally the year I was born, 1954. I didn't, I was not there for that, but I was managing that orchard. Um, and the orchard was uh, managed not so much as an orchard as it was a forest. And if you walked into the, that uh, block of trees um, and sat down and began digging around, it was as if you were in 
some ancient forest. The, the uh, soils beneath those trees were incredibly rich and dynamic with all of the elements of a, of a native or natural ecosystem. Uh, and the result, of course, the trees were like 40, 50 feet tall. The result was unbelievable productivity. You know? um, so in a very small space, using, uh, um, you know, essentially mimicking natural systems and making use of vertical space, I have to add that in, uh, that very tiny block generated uh, probably 20 to 30 times what it would have in a conventional system. I'm going to jump ahead and just, and again, I'm going to be really brief. Um, uh, we moved uh, 1,200 miles north, been on um, Salt Spring Island for the last 22 years. Uh, our family farm is 120 acre, um, uh, one of the original homesteads on the island. Um, and it is um, as completely dynamically different from that experience in California, 12 and a half acres floating in a sea of tract homes and shopping centers. This is 120 acres surrounded by completely protected land. And what we've seen here, which is remarkable, is that our fields uh, are um, uh, intersected and intertwined and surrounded by native forest. And I don't really understand it entirely, but I have discovered that there's definitely something going on there. <laughs> um, most of which I cannot visibly see, except again in the productivity of the, of the things we're growing. There is a dynamic happening in relationship between the, those forests and those fields. They're smaller fields, as I said, intersected with native forest. And we have also seen production levels um, that are uh, unmatched. Uh, and I'm pretty convinced that there's some, something going on in relationship to uh, uh, what surrounds those fields. It's not a, a, a big, massive agricultural opera operation. Here we're growing very different things. We're growing grain and beans, uh, fruits and vegetables as well, a uh, limited amount of livestock. Um, I wouldn't call this uh, necessarily a fully integrated farm because uh, the emphasis on fruits and vegetables is much higher. And that's predominantly for economic reasons. Um, that's what pays the bills. The grain, the dry beans, um, uh, the little bit of hay we do, the little bit of livestock we do um, uh, are, uh, do not generate income in and of themselves, but they contribute to the whole. Uh, and they contribute to the whole ecologically as well. Um, and then the last thing is our project in Vancouver, which I, I don't know how to address ecology there because we're producing uh, food on huge parking lots. It's primarily a social enterprise designed to provide employment for people who are dealing with long-term addiction, mental illness. Uh, we are operating on about four acres of pavement using an innovative box system that we've designed that isolates the growing medium from either pavement or um, contaminated soils and allows us to move on short notice. Uh, we produce about uh, somewhere around 40 to 50 tons of food annually. Um, that's a, uh, a lot of greens. And that's all done with the hands of people who uh, not only had no agricultural experience, but who were dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, so in ter the, the term ecology there would be um, extended to human ecology as well and what's happening with the people we're working with, uh, what the influences have been on the neighborhood, 
the ecology that's actually been created on the sites themselves as uh, every uh, bird and skunk uh, and uh, everything else that uh, has no home anymore finds their way in. You know? So uh, I'm gonna leave it at that. That was not a very good, uh, uh, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I'll end it there. No, no, that's perfect. It gives an idea for the listeners of all the different systems that you have worked with so far. And it's a great segue into the next question I was going to ask is one of these things that constantly comes up both in regenerative agriculture and permaculture is trying to find that delicate balance between the diversity needed for a resilient and healthy ecology and the efficiency needed to run a profitable business. So I'm going to actually throw to Mark here, who was starting to touch on this topic uh, a little bit earlier. Can you tell us how you found that balance on your own farm so that you're still able to run it as a business, but making sure that the ecology is, is not, uh, I guess, put to the side in the effort to create a profit? Well, one of, one of the things that uh, I, I wanted to jump in when Michael was talking last, because he hit on something that was absolutely critical is in his circumstances, the produce is the cash flow, and that's what takes care of the whole thing. And that's what's my circumstance as well. One of the issues with produce is you need to have enough. You make a, you can grow a ton, you know, more several tons in a very small space, but you need to have enough of anything in order to make it economically worth your while to go out, harvest it, package it, post-harvest handling, then deliver it to whoever's uh, producing it. And so one of the economic strategies that I also employed, I was one of the early members, uh, not initial founding members, but I was one of the early members of the Organic Valley Cooperative. And so what we were able to do as, as a, a group of produce growers is instead of having like the 100,000 different varieties that Michael grows in his operation, we could each pick three or four, whatever worked for our operation. And so with produce, I'd have asparagus in the springtime while I'm getting my site prepared for my summer crop, which was usually either uh, zucchini or cucumbers. Then my late summer crop was green peppers and I'd finish the fall with mostly acorn squash and pie pumpkins. And that would give me something through the seasons so I wasn't overwhelmed at any one point in time. Well, if you notice my fingers, well now there's these rows of polycultures of trees in between. I had to have enough of any one crop, apples, uh, chestnuts and hazelnuts uh, and pine nuts are my biggest uh, woody crops. And, and if you go out and you plant four hazelnut bushes, well, good for you, you've got some hazelnut snacks, but if you actually wanna make it worth your while to get out there and harvest it, uh, husk them, you need the equipment for husking it, then for cracking and sorting and sizing and all that, you need enough or you need to join with others. And so uh, my ecological system is way more diverse than that, but I don't harvest everything. And I, and I basically only harvest what I can keep up with. And that includes livestock is I, I can only handle uh, like three or four crops above ground and two, maybe three species of animal before I just go crazy and I can't handle it all. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't do the others because someone had mentioned, Hey, well, how do you manage your hay if you're not you know, cutting it? It's like, well, I don't pretty easy, low cost. So does that, does that make any sense at all? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Uh, and Michael, you talked about all of the different elements that you have on your farm in BC and that some of them are not even cultivated specifically to gain a profit from them, but they fit in with the health of the ecosystem. Can you talk about that? 
how you made those decisions? Yeah, so the decisions of the, the crop mix decisions are both made from the perspective of the, the ecology that we're working with, but it's all, they're also made uh, in respect of the community that we're serving. So while there are a number of things that I know we produce that don't actually uh, generate net income in and of themselves, they are part of a uh, kind of the broader palette that we have to offer our community. So that when someone comes to me at the farmer's market or, or as part of our box program, they know that they can get a full range of, of foods that they need. Um, and I think that interestingly enough, that kind of, again, social ecology, if you will, um, and community ecology um, tends to support the farm ecology as well. Um, I mean, it's kind of a cliche that diversity is uh, a key component of ecological stability. Um, uh, although I, I think there are some exceptions to that in nature, certainly. But I think um, uh, there is truth of that, truth in that on our farm. Um, although I'm not convinced that the um, that the sustainability of the people doing the work are supported by that. And it's kind of like what Mark was saying, you know, the more diversity you have, the more complexity of management, the more difficult it is for the people doing the work, the more interesting it is, the less boring it is, but I'm not sure how sustainable it is, you know, uh, for the, the, the farmer themselves. And that's, we, we talk about sustainability often without considering the people who are actually doing the work. Um, I will say that row crops, vegetables in particular, the annuals, um, uh, it requires a lot more careful <coughs> consideration and thinking to grow those products um, in a way that does not become a mining operation on your soils, you know. Um, uh, our perennials, we do a lot of perennials and I, um, I'm very satisfied with my ability to support um, ecological uh, stability with the perennials. But with the annuals, because of the turning of soil, you know, the, the, the churning and turning that happens, it requires a lot more attention, a lot more consideration and a lot more care. And I think that the way we have achieved some of that is that we don't have huge blocks of one particular product. There's a lot of intermixing that goes on. And we're now farming with understories of clover. We're doing vegetables with understories of clover. And we're, we're doing a lot of um, kind of experimentation in regards to um, uh, mixing our cover crops um, uh, and our uh, edible crops, humanities crop and nature crop, nature's crop at the same time, rather than this, the separate cover cropping that's often done in the winter months. I'm drifting. Bring yeah. me back, bring me back, Oliver. <laughs> if, I, if I could make a wave on either side of your boat, you know, to dovetail with what you were talking about, Michael, having certain things that were not necessarily economically profitable, and the same is, is the situation on my farm. And if we're doing alley cropping with rows of trees, with an alley of whatever our cash crop is in between, if we're doing produce, for example, that requires a, a good high fertility, we definitely have a, a set and it's, <laughs> I kind of call it like time of mining or, or small scale mining. I'll take a year, sometimes two years with various different cover crop mixes to build up. 
And then I go into a, a, a heavy feeder that can tolerate turning under a sod like my winter squash. Then I want something that doesn't get a lot of fertility. So it puts more into fruit like my green peppers. Um, and then immediately after that, I go back into a two year rotation that include, includes the grains and the legumes. The grains and the legumes aren't um, generating a cash revenue, but they're essential for rebuilding that, the, the organic matter that you're losing and recovering any, any uh, mobile nutrients that were in the soil. Um, and so they're not necessarily economic, but they're critical for the economics. And is this all with the mindset of trying to reduce any offsite inputs into the system? Or is it really just for boosting the productivity of those primary producers that you had planned for? Who are you addressing, Michael or me? I guess both of you have similar, similar ways of rotating those. But since you just mentioned it, Mark, I was directing that to you. Oh, well, my, uh, my crop inputs are drastically reduced simply because uh, there's, there's so very little uh, nutrients that get exported from the site and very little leaching um, because we're recovering it again with, with um, you know, with deep, deep rooted um, cover crops. The, the, <laughs> what was the question? Michael, help, <laughs> your turn. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it's not, I'm not the attempting. Input, Mark, inputs. Oh, right. I'm not attempting to reduce inputs. It's just that if you look at, once again, the ditch on the side of the road, there really are no positive beneficial inputs to the ditch on the side of the road and it thrives. So we can manage a system with minimal inputs if we're using these species that are now being genetically driven to adapt and evolve to the site as they are. That said, you're never going to get broccoli to behave on a, on a alkaline rock. So there will be inputs necessary for, you know, my, my cash crops, my asparagus, for example, you know, my cucumbers or, or green peppers. I'll just add that, uh, you know, living on an island has taught me a lot. Um, uh, you know, just because you live on, on an island doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you think like an island. And I think uh, the key is thinking like an island. Um, uh, and um, for me, the, the, um, the opportunity that's been provided here is that number one, it's, it's just simply more expensive to bring things in, um, uh, a lot more expensive. So that alone has forced me to rethink um, some of the things I'm doing in, in regards to inputs, you know, and, um, and, we have um, we have really evolved a system that is moving towards not there we haven't arrived but moving towards or attempting to move towards considering the farm as um, as its own island as its own self-supporting ecosystem so that most of our uh, uh, nutritional needs can be generated on site now that's easy for me to say now on 120 acres than it was for me to say when I was on 12 acres, <laughs> because we have the ability to lengthen our rotations and to do things that we just couldn't do before. Um, but I think that um, wherever one is farming, it's really important to consider um, the possibility of how much can you, how much nutrition and nutrient and recirculation and recycling can be generated just within your own farm. You know, how much can you consider that farm as its own 
self-supporting ecosystem and what is really necessary to bring in from the outside. And I will, I'll repeat again that the, the annual crops demand much more inputs. <laughs> um, and that's where the challenge is. That's where the edge is. So, so Michael, just a question. Do you uh, have your own composting operation on site or multiple sites? How do you, how do you deal with that? On site. I'm, now I'm, I'm just talking about Foxglove Farm now. Right, right, right. I'm not talking about um, Soul Food Street Farms is a whole other animal. I mean, it's a, so I'm just, um, yeah, so we do all our, on, all our own on-site composting at Foxglove Farm. And, um, and, you know, and we do, we're, we're kind of religious cover croppers, uh, both winter cover cropping and, um, and also permanent cover cropping. We're now, as I mentioned, we're now interplanting a lot with, within permanent cover crops. Um, so yes, yeah. Well, here with the last 15 minutes or so that we've got before I give it over to the participants to ask their questions, let me focus a little bit on your own business models and especially the different ways that you have found to market so as not to get into the cycle of commodity crop uh, determination or the price determination from outside, which really takes away the autonomy of farmers of uh, basically how they produce. Mark, you were talking about earlier how you were an, an early <laughs> you're an uh, an early participant in Organic Valley, which is a very well known organic uh, produce seller in the United States. Can you talk about that decision and how it's determined the way that you sell and produce on your own farm? Uh, the that decision was probably one of the best that I've made. And the reason why it went false when you were talking about how it takes away all your autonomy and the low price, blah blah blah. Well, what, what we've done is we basically pool our resources together and then we put it on a truck and it goes wholesale. So we're not going direct to retail, not direct to the consumer with the majority of the product. And what that does is the price gets set by the market, you know, Whole Foods, for example. And, and basically you will, and actually what, what's even worse than that, it's, it's Cal Organics and UNFI that are basically setting all the price. And so you have to deal with that. There's no way you're gonna be able to sell, you know, cucumbers for more than what the market will bear. So what ends up happening is you have to produce them at below the cost. Well, if you're gonna be doing it with a high input system, like in an urban farm situation, there's so much hand labor going in and so much high intensity going in that you, you have to get a higher price just to recoup your expenses. Whereas if you're doing things the way I've been doing it, really low key, laid back, um, not putting a lot of effort into uh, uh, any one thing. And then, man, Michael, my, my produce fields would probably make you sick with the weeds and the competition. It's just a mess <laughs> of this, that, and the other thing. Um, and then I go out and I pick the stuff and I only sell the perfect stuff. And, and it works when you reduce your inputs below a certain point and the market drives the price. That's just the way it is. So, so that was a really good move on my part. And, and the biggest reason why um, uh, I did that and I like it, I think I might be part Asperger's is because if I'm on my topic, I can talk about this kind of stuff all the time. I'm really outgoing, really, you know, flamboyant informational. If I start talking about like shoes or trucks or anything, I don't know what other people talk about. I can't stand people. They're just like, it's pointless stuff. This is important. So I did it because I couldn't stand being at farmer's market. I was gonna strangle people who complained that they had to pay 50 cents for a cucumber. It's like, well, go buy a cucumber from Michael. 
you know. So that's why I, I well, they pay a dollar for me. <laughs> that's because you're polite. <laughs> so I think that I don't know that hits on a little bit of that. For sure. What about you, Michael, and uh, the different avenues to market that you found in order to basically keep as much of the revenue into the farm as possible? Well, first of all, I mean, I think Mark's right. It's uh, the if you're going to direct market, you have to have the personality or the desire to do that. You have to want to you know, be in that situation and not frankly, not everybody does. And some people get into farming because they want, you know, more isolation, not not social interaction. So, um, you know, we the, the nature of what we do uh, requires uh, that we do a lot of direct marketing. Uh, uh, the return is higher. Uh, however, there is a, a significant investment if you're going to do farmers markets of time and displays, etc. Um, so, I mean, our um, we have a, a, a slightly diverse marketing scheme. We have a um, a box program, and I, again, I'm talking about well, I'll, I'll talk about both Fox Club Farm and Soul Food Street Farms. Both have um, uh, well over you know uh, anywhere in the range of 150 to 200 members in a box program. We have, uh, we do two farmers markets a week at Fox Club and in Vancouver, there's three. Um, we also have um, sales to restaurants or we did, I should say. <laughs> that ended uh, a year ago, uh, sadly. Um, and all of those things, the nature of your marketing informs the nature of what you grow, what you grow and how you grow it to, to some degree. All these things are tied together in kind of a web. Um, so it, these, these are good questions because the ecology, the marketing, the economy, um, the crop mix, all these things are connected. And so when I'm making decisions, I'm thinking about all these elements together. In December, when I'm ordering seed, I'm actually pre-visualizing my display at the farmer's market, for example, or or the families I know I'm going to be, you know, making boxes for, or the chef that I'm going to be serving, you know, um, and so um, um, yeah, I mean, we're we are to some degree dependent on because of our smaller scale, uh, because of the products we grow, uh, on a, a heavy emphasis on uh, direct marketing and community involvement. Um, and I do, you know, while I used to wholesale when I was in California, I don't think there's anything anymore that I, I uh, uh, load up on pallets and, and, and uh, forklift onto trucks. I, uh, that was a, a part of my life in the past, but it is no longer. Yeah. Just, just quickly uh, to deal with the diversity as well and reducing costs is what I've spoke about first, the different entity structures that the real estate is held by one entity then there's the nursery, the consultant, the uh, farm as separate entities. Um, the farm then doesn't have to pay for everything. It only has to pay for the farm expenses and the rent that it pays to the real estate holding entity. The nursery pays its expenses and the rent that it pays to the real estate holding entity. So its costs, its uh, fixed costs are reduced as well. All right, thanks again to the two panelists, Mark Shepard and Michael Abelman, who are both working tirelessly to create a healthier and more resilient farming culture around the world. I highly recommend that you check out their work. You can find Mark's company and his books at restorationag.com 
and all of Michael's resources at michaelableman.com. And a special thanks to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event and to all the wonderful people who showed up and participated in the chat. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experienced perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It will always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links on our Discord in the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question that we'll be discussing on the forum is, how can you manage the whole ecology of your farm, or even your backyard or your home, to save you money? At the end of the day, a farm is still a business, and if you're not making money, you won't be in business for very long. Now don't forget that you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the Discord forum too. Now that's our show for the week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.